hear a lot of people talk about charisma when they talk about Lance. And when I first started working with him on The Phantom and the Wren, I felt that charisma too. But, you know, something changed over time, and I don't really know still if it was a change in Laz or if it was a change in how I understood him, you know, as we worked together, made art for, fuck, for 16 years. But near the end, it wasn't charisma. It wasn't. It was more like, he felt like, he felt like where we were going was inevitable. Same way death is inevitable. And rising to meet it was a task. It was a task we were all with him in, one way or another. Welcome to the Marmoset Chronicles, a personal retrospective. I'm Jay, and I'm joined as always by Kirsten. How are you, Kirsten? I'm pretty good. How are you, Jay? That was a that was a good quote to start us off with, I think. Yeah, that is a lovely uh, Benjamin St. James interview from not too, from like uh, I don't know. Me, I was about to say not too was, long. That's not true at all. About a decade after the final one of these movies came out. Yeah, that was like the big Rolling Stones rep- retrospective that they did, right? I feel like it I've was. That so before. it was a retrospective and kind of attempt at an investigation as to whatever mm-hmm. happened to Laz. But <laughs> the what what they did with it that is really funny looking back when you think about how Laz has continued to be nowhere is the fact that uh. <laughs> What they did was just, like, try and interrogate the actors and, like, other people who worked with Laz on those movies. Be like, all right, it's been ten years. You gotta spill the beans on where he is. And they're all still, you know, then in, uh, 96, they're they're all like, no, fuck off. We're not telling you a damn thing about where our friend went. He wants to be left alone. And so he will be. Yeah. And, uh... Part of me is always kind of sad that so much of Laz's legacy now to people is of just, like, the the director who disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, to the point where, like, I go on, like, a once-yearly true crime binge. Just just go with me for a second. I promise sure. I, I have a point here. Which means that, like, you know, once a year I, I basically just, you know, read a bunch of true crime stuff and inevitably end up on the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit. Mm, it's a good one. And, you know, he pops up there sometimes. Like, where sure. is director Laz Patillo? I know I've said a couple times that I think it's the Latvian wilderness. Um, but was Latvia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Latvia is what the, the consensus I've always seemed to seem is that he's somewhere in Latvia or somewhere I read Sri- in... I, I read Sri Lanka a couple places. was the only other place Sri- I'd Sri Lanka? Seen. Yeah. You, you know, because it's always like Eastern Europe or... Balkan or or the the one of the islands. I, I say the islands as if like all islands are created similar. I, I, I all islands are. Hold on, Kirsten. Are you saying all islands are not created equal? <laughs> no, I'm what just are saying. You implicating that? I'm just saying that I'm I'm from a place where when you say the islands, you mean a very particular set of islands. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> a long one. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's definitely. Can you imagine if Laz Patillo has been hiding on fucking Long Island this whole? That time? would be, or he, or he's like in Nantucket or something. <laughs> that Fuck! Be... What if he's in Nantucket? Kirsten, I've been in Nantucket twice. I could have been close to him. I don't think he's in Nantucket, Jay. I think I he's think very so. far away from the United yeah. States. And uh, when we originally blueprinted out this show, it was always going to be ten episodes. So we were going to have introduction episode for each movie, and then this, this conclusion episode. Yes. And we never really hashed out how what we were going to talk about in the conclusion episode, but it, fe- it always felt like we were going to need one. Yeah. Because this, these movies are sort of a lot, 
Um, and we have not even touched even a fraction of all the this, this, this stuff this movie, these movies have covered or all the stuff that you could go into with these movies. We haven't really talked about them as a political commentary. I've done that pretty extensively elsewhere. Uh, I've, I've met, I, I know I've mentioned this in the Discord. I think I've mentioned it on a different episode a few times that I've, I, I wrote a pretty in-depth thesis, essentially, about how uh, these movies are one of the most uh, scathing critiques of Reagan politics that don't, that doesn't um, directly address the AIDS, ep- AIDS epidemic. But it, it would be impossible for us to talk about everything these movies do. But it always did feel like we were going to need a debrief. Yeah, well, I think you hit on something important there, right? Because this is one of those texts, and we, we've talked about this already, that, like, you can come to and find things that really speak to you, and then someone else can come to and find things that really speak to them. Mm-hmm. Everything you've just said about the uh, the historical commentary is true. I don't have a good head for real history in mm-hmm. the world even worse for, like, media that is trying to be a historical commentary. Like, that is just a section of life and earth that my brain has never really, like... It's just not a kind of dialogue between the author and what they're talking about that has ever really uh, done much to stick in my head. Um, But, you know, there's a million other things that do from the trauma that Georgie goes through to the meta-narrative stuff, everything we've already Mm -hmm. talked about. I, I think part of what's so important about this is that, you know... You have the things you like the most about this series. I have the things I like the most about this series. Everyone listening to this has the things they like the most about this series. Mm-hmm. And all of those are kind of created equal. And that's yeah. something you got to strive for with any really great piece of art, you know? Absolutely. And I guess, like, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking about the... Or at least I'm spending a lot of time talking about, like, this episode as a concept. Because it's kind of hard to figure out where to start with a debrief. Yeah. But... Here's where I think we're going to start, if that's okay. I'm gonna I'm sure. gonna softball this to you, and sure. uh, you can put a pin in it and come back to it later. Can you okay. rank these movies in order of your favorite? Oh, uh, see, and we do need to do that too because we did talk about that a couple times. Yes. All right. Now, now I know why you listed them off very distinctly in our shared Google Doc. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I'm down to do this. Um. All right. So you know, Diagnosis Aquamarine is my number one. Absolutely, yes, I do. I I think when we talked about the Purgatory Bureaucrat, I, I didn't forget how cool a movie it was, but I kind of, like, that's a really fucking good movie. That might it be is. my number two. I, I think that's my number two, which which surprise, not surprises me. It's, it's like I, I just had to have a good reminder on how good it is. Yeah. Um. See, I feel like, I feel like everybody has their top four and their bot, and then... At least for me, my bottom four, I like them all about the same. It's so yeah. It's really easy for me to list off my top four favorite movies in the series, and then all the rest of them basically shuffle around as they will. Right, that's that's valid. Do you want to say what your top four are? Yeah, my, my top four, my number one is Diagnosis Aquamarine. Mm-hmm. Then I go The Purgatory Bureaucrat. Then mm-hmm. I do And the Mountain Came to Them. and the, the, So the, my, my three and four could be flipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Mountain Came to Them... I really like, and then Logica is my number four. Off the top of my off the top of my head, the reason Logica is lower is just because of the you know yeah the Georgie being a voice box for Laz stuff um, yeah as we've litigated. But when we had that episode, I th- that episode really did get me thinking on some stuff I do like about uh, about that movie when it comes to the the 
contrast between Georgie and Margot. Yeah. I, I think I think that contrast doesn't quite work for me as much as it could, and that's why it's my number four. But mm-hmm. it's still a really awesome movie. I think, um, honestly, for all four of these top ones, I'm realizing location is such a big thing. Maybe yeah. less for the Purgatory Bureaucrat. But for the other three, location is such a big part of it. The, uh, the house in Diagnosis Aquamarine, the... Um, the, the mountainside town in and the mountain came to them and the uh, the underground city in the fighting ring in Logica. Um, yeah. After that, I think the plot the pl- the the, blah, 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 blah. the plot the plot I keep saying plaper, um, which is not a word. Is the <laughs> Try to get plaper. I think the plot the paper and the place we end up is my number five. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not as strong on the ending of it, and I you know th- there there's moments where like I almost wonder if it's a little more low energy than it needs to be. I don't even think definitively it does, but it's a thought I have but yeah. every everything we talked about at the end of that movie where it's a whole like the meta narrative critique of that movie I will be thinking about from now until I'm dead, <laughs> and so it has to be there for me just because of that, yeah, so my top four. Uh, my, 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 my favorite one is the Purg- Purgatory Bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. Then the Phantom and the Wren. Then Obstacle Corps. Then the plot, the paper, and the place we end up. And definitively my number, f- uh, my number five spot is Logica. And then the rest of them kind of clink around. Uh, I know it's kind of sacrilege to have Diagnosis Aquamarine that low. I kind of see that for you, but based on um, what we've talked about, that makes yeah. sense to me. And it's again, those last four movies are not the, the, the that like bottom three. Um, it's not that I don't like any of these movies. Like um, the Shadow Kid is on is in that bottom four for sure. And yeah. I, I, I spent a, a a whole episode of this show passionately defending that movie. Sort I'm surprised of. you don't have that one higher, honestly. Um, that one's probably, but but. See, that's why it's so hard, because other than that top four, they're all kind of equal to me, and they're all great. Even the ones that are, like, and the reason my top four is my top four is really because they're the ones I revisit the most. Yeah, yeah, I, that's the same for me for mine, I think, yeah. But I've, I've gone back to The Phantom and the Wren more than any other movie in the series. I probably watched The Phantom and the Red most. And then I just love Obstacle Core. I remember watching Obstacle Core over and over again. And, you know, I had my big teenaged emo moment with uh, movie 8, and I've gone back to it a lot because of that. So th- really, those are just in my... My top four are my top four because I've rewatched them most. That's a valid reason, I think, yeah. My, my, my bottom four are my bottom four because I've rewatched them less, but it doesn't mean I like them less. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It it does. The only like for me, my bottom three are uh, the Phantom and the Wren, Obstacle Core, and the Shadow Kit. The Shadow Kit cements its place in last for me. We don't need to relitigate that. No, one. we don't. But on- honestly, the uh, the Phantom and the Wren and Obstacle Core, I love every movie in this series except the Shadow Kit. Like yeah. the Shadow Kit's the only one, and that that's why I know it's the easy last. Is that mm-hmm. it's the only one in these movies that I do not love. Or like, <laughs> yes, yeah. Sorry, but yeah, like for me, for me, uh, the Phantom and the Wren is very strong. It's just specifically the stuff it's doing just doesn't quite. I, I think I have the Phantom and the Wren the same place you have Diagnosis Aquamarine, which is really interesting. Mm. Where for me, like it's it's working. It's just 
not stuff that engages with me as hard as it engaged with a lot yeah. of people. Like, if it were, if it were, you know, if, if I were a, a kid or a teen when that came out and I went and saw it at a theater, I would think it was cool. And I would be thinking about it. I'd probably watch it another time or two. I don't know if it would, like, immediately just make me go feral for knowing what's next, you know? Yeah, um, I got you. And, and then, and then uh, Obstacle Course kind of the same way. I, I Obstacle Course sense of almost aimlessness in the traversal through the city. Like, I, I don't know why I'm not motivated. I think Obstacle Course... I've actually watched The Shadow Kit which I dislike more than I've watched Obstacle Core. Really? Because I've wanted to understand the Shadow Kit better than I do. I've, like, re-watched it to try and be like, all right, what am I not getting here? There has to be something more here. Yeah. Whereas Obstacle Core, I like a lot, but I kind of feel like, like, what extra meat is there doesn't necessarily call me to go and eat more of it that often, I guess. I don't know. Okay, that's, Um, that's super fair. And I feel like... You know, another reason I put Diagnosis Aquamarine so low is because it is a deeply emotionally exhausting movie for me personally to watch. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of one of these like quintessential movies that, that are is like this kind of movie for a lot of people. Okay, so let's say The Shawshank Redemption. Have you seen The Shawshank Redemption? I have. That's a good movie. Yeah, I like the movie a lot. You don't want to watch that movie all the time. No, or like Schindler's, Schindler's List. Schindler's List, is yes. Good one. That was the next one I was going to. Either Schindler's <laughs> List or Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, one yeah, yeah, those, yeah. One of those, like, wow, this is great. This is a masterpiece. I never want to watch it again. Do you, do you feel like Diagnosis Aquamarine is on that same level for you as those? Um, not quite. Um, and the reason it it's even close to that point I, I, it is because of like some personal stuff with me and sure. just sort of how that household operates. Um, and it, it, it's, it's way too individualized for me to put it on a level like that with, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of movies where everybody's like, wow, it's great. Just thank you for making it. I never want to see it again. But it does produce a similar kind of emotional exhaustion in me, which is why it's not higher. That's fair. I I think I'm a little bit more of a slut for emotional exhaustion than you are. Yes. <laughs> because because well, I, I think was that the episode where I mentioned Mother? How Mother is one of those movies exactly what you're describing for me, where it's like yeah. I love it and I don't know what year it will be when I feel emotionally prepared to watch it again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there are movies like that that I think I can go back to more so than some people, but just not that one, and I don't really know why. No, that that's valid. I I think what you said about like yeah no I I can totally see that. Um, yeah, I don't know. For for me, it's just I I like. I mean, these are all us getting to Georgie's head, you know, and, mm-hmm. and like the the top for, for me my my top like five. Looking at my little list, I typed out here it is is definitely all ones that are the most into Georgie's head or uh, Laz's head. I keep yeah. fucking doing that. Like, like like if anything, maybe that's the reason that. Obstacle Core and Phantom and the Wren are two of my lowest ones, is that I don't feel like we see as much into how Laz is thinking in those. Which is fine. Yeah. But that is such a big part of what I love about these movies, is really getting into the minutia of this dude's brain. Especially mm-hmm. after we've done this podcast and talked about that for, you know, nine going on ten episodes. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just love doing that. And um, so I, I think I think that's why it puts that that high for me. That's interesting, though. And looking at my top four, um, I seem to be going for the really sort of hyper stylized ones. Mm-hmm. 
like the really like cinematographer's wet dream kind Definitely. of movies, which Definitely, um, yeah. you know, I've sometimes uh, I and I can admit this about myself. I go for movies and it's all style over substance. Um, I think we all do that sometimes. There's no shame there, man. And it's, uh, those movies are just so stylish, and I love their aesthetics. And they're the sometimes it's it's really movies' aesthetics, not necessarily movies' stories, that make me want to create worlds of my own. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And uh, I guess th- those are what did it for me. Uh, so I-, I feel like that was the hardest part of the episode because we did need to do that at some point. Yeah, we did. We got that out of the way. That's really interesting, though. I'm glad we did that. That was a uh, a cool sort of... Exercise? Yeah, exercise. Sure. So what now? Um... I don't know. Well, I guess one of the things I've been thinking about with this series is how differently people react to it than other kind of beloved franchises and maybe why that might be. Mm-hmm. Because definitely, like, the, I guess for lack of a better word, fandom for this movie is very different than, like, a Star Wars type deal. Sure, yeah. Or even the kind of people you see flocking around the Godfather movies. Yeah, Fun fact, I've never seen the Godfather movie, so I'm a little blinder to that one, but I'm with you on the Star Wars one. Um, uh, I'm, um, I've seen the Godfather movies. Uh, they're, I don't like them as much as most people do, but that's because I don't like mob movies that much. That's valid. Um, not to, you know, you know, conjure up George Lucas and Las Patillo screaming at each other again. Um, <laughs> Why not? It's funny. It is really funny. It's like the funniest <laughs> thing ever, let's be honest. But, it's um, the funniest thing on earth. What? I, I wonder why. Is it just the science fiction thing? Is it just the fact that, like, maybe this Star Wars movies were a little bit more accessible and a little bit more instantly, instant nerd bait, kind of, that they just sort of... I, I think that's part of it. So okay. I think when you talk about Star Wars, I, I actually think it's like Star Wars is the perfect example here. Mm-hmm. Think about Star Wars and I, I don't know if you've watched a lot of like documentary type stuff about like people talking about what it, you know, what those draws were for them. Something yeah. I've heard a lot is that, you know, a lot of it was the effects, was the like everything from the costuming to, you know, the spaceship fights to a lightsaber on screen for the first time. Just a lot of things visually that created a world that could not really have been visually conceived to that degree before. And okay. the difference between how Star Wars does that and how Laz does that is that some of the Marmoset Chronicles movies barely subscribe to that. My favorite yeah. one barely subscribes to any kind of unusual portrayal other than this house has a lot of shit in it and my dad might be a vampire. My dad um, might be a vampire. The absolutely true Channel diaries show. of a guy whose va- dad might be a vampire. What? That sounds like a Disney Channel show. My dad it, might... Wait, isn't that... Wasn't that a Disney Channel movie? Mom's Dating a Vampire? Sure, man. Whatever you say. Holy I, crap, I actually never that, watched the Disney Channel. Is that based on this book? The movie series? Okay, we're gonna... I, I can't go down that brain path right now. We're gonna... D- hard turn. Depends on whether it was pre or post Twilight, really. Oh, no. This was definitely pre-Twilight, but uh, okay. I do think that... Huh. Hold on. I'm going to Google this while you continue to talk about Star Wars because you are much okay. more knowledgeable about Star Wars than me. Sure. So, so you know, you, you look at Star Wars, and this is I think this is, you know, even the prequels 
are in some ways good at this. I'll give them some ways, like costuming and stuff. Uh, all of Star Wars builds on those things that makes their world really cool. I think even the good Star Wars movies are more, in some ways, more about expanding their world than about their storytelling. I think The Last Jedi, maybe that's less true of, and that's part of why some people bash their heads against that one. Uh, but the original trilogy... What? Sorry. Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. It's a Disney Channel movie that came out in 2000. Fucking Christ. All okay. right. All right. All right. You know, uh, Georgie's dad gets divorced eventually, goes and gets ma remarried. <laughs> I'm sorry, I derailed this really badly by talking about this Disney Channel movie. Um, no, listen, some might argue that weird Disney Channel movies are more important than Star Wars. Um, yeah. So, I, I, I think, I think like, I was, I was casting too broadly. Looking just at least the original trilogy, there's a good story in those movies, you know? Like, George Lucas wrote them about his own frustrations with his dad, and so that's why Luke and Darth Vader are the way they are. That's fine, there's Is a good true? story in there. Huh? Is that true? Oh, yeah. The original reason Star Wars was written was because... George. This is true. George Lucas's dad ran a either auto body shop or a hardware store and wanted George to take it over once he was an adult, and George didn't want to. And he was just so fucking mad about that that he wrote a big story about a guy who has to fight his own dad. Um, wow. So, okay, so... Anyway, so... Bring this back to base. The, the problem yeah. is that... These movies are do not have as uh, do not take place in this living, vibrant universe with places to grow and new things to explore like Star Wars yeah. does. Yeah, I, I think if you want to draw that comparison, Star Wars feels like it's mostly always building on that same grander universe. Yes, the Marmoset Chronicles feels like a series of different dreams one guy had. Well, it's kind of like I mean, we start every every Star Wars movie with stating. That we're in a, a galaxy. Yeah, sure. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, this this has this world has a galaxy's worth of stories to tell. Yeah. I guess the Marmoset Chronicles doesn't. The Marmoset Chronicles has one lifetime's worth of stories to tell, and we only really get to see a slice of them. Yeah, yeah, and you could totally add more in there, but yeah, the, the scope of that is still... You know what? Here, here's a thought exercise. Okay. How weird would it be, I guess is the question, I'm realizing there's not a good question here. How how strange would it be if they tried to make a spin-off series of movies that was, like, banking on the idea that Georgie is moving through kind of a time-unstuck loop of things, but just having another character go through a similar one? Like... Okay, if, so kind if, of like like sequel Star Wars sequel movies the Marmoset Chronicles I'm having a couple different thoughts about the Star Wars sequel movies here yeah so like that's one possibility if let's say they made a new set of Marmoset Chronicles movies okay let's one... pretend for a minute we're in a universe where Laz would ever allow that yeah or make that willingly himself or yes. yeah sign off on someone else doing it that's one way it could go the other and this is this this adds to the Star Wars comparison more when you look at the new Star Wars movies, mm -hmm. something they do a really good job at is looking at that original trilogy and saying, all right, what else can we do in terms of, like, costumes and stuff like, and, like, art design to build off the way these original movies looked and just sort of do more that's very much in the spirit of that. And, and I, I think, the, I, think I, I don't love the new trilogy, the sequel trilogy, but I think that's one thing they all have as a strength mm -hmm. is, like, you look at, uh, 
the 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 sand and rock planet Razon in The Force Awakens, and like the aliens there and the creatures you meet in that movie look like they could have been in the Mos Eisley Cantina in the first Star Wars. If you try to do that with the Marmoset Chronicles, you'd end up copying off the set of wildly different ideas in yeah. those original movies too much, I think. And it wouldn't yeah. feel like what more of those movies would be. The moment you have one of those movies that feels too much like any of the other ones, you failed. Yes. You completely failed. Well, it's also... So, another, uh, another I think, a big difference between these two movie series is that this is, like, the opposite of a hot take. This is a cold take. The... The Star Wars movies are, you know, the most basic telling of the hero's journey. L- literally, you can plot out the entire hero's journey with Star Wars. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's how my teacher in 11th grade taught us the hero's journey. Makes sense. I, and, and you can put any character in a hero's journey and it'll just kind of work. So, yeah. you know, you can put... Luke in a hero's journey. And great, you got three movies there. You can put... Well, you can kind of try to give Anakin a hero's journey and then sort of derail it and then kind of do a lot of other weird things. But, you know, (laughs) the idea is there. Yeah. The problems with those movies are how it deviates from the way you'd logically think that story would progress. Right. And 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 that that is kind of a weird hiccup with the prequels is that you know where it's leading and in the end of that... Like, Who's to say whether that helps or hurts more? Probably hurts more. But then, then you know, you take this new character, you take Rey, and you put her in a hero's journey, and it also pretty pretty much works. Sure, yeah. Um, There is no real hero's journey in the Marmoset Chronicles. I don't know if you yeah. could make this arc about anyone other than this one character it's about. Which is why, you know, you don't really have... I don't... You don't really have a chance for spinoffs. And all the yeah, spin-offs, exactly. all the spin-offs of this world don't really work super well. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that with you know when we talk about like novels, comics, shit like that. It's not canon, yeah. but exists. Yeah, I I think that's true. I think the Marmoset Chronicles, and maybe the, the, I think there's a reason I I like it more as I start to get more and more feel more and more alienated from these other things. The Marmoset Chronicles is kind of the anti-franchise milking franchise. Yes. Oh my god, that's so accurate. Yes. You know, right? Because, like, it's exactly what we're saying. It's a complete package that, frankly, it's amazing that it, like, it it is a little crazy that it succeeded as much as it did, especially starting in 1970. Yeah. Like, when when it's as kind of heady as it is. And I I think that's that's to the, the applause of the... Applause... I think that's to the, the, you know, accolade of the first two movies, honestly. Yeah. I think if those first two movies were headier and they wouldn't work in terms of driving that. But yeah, you can't just make more of this. What no. would a sequel series look like unless it was uh, what Discord member uh, Voy and Seth mentioned, which was the theory that... Uh, oh, the- yeah. I, I feel like we have to give Seth credit for bringing it up, and also we have to talk about it. The bananas theory that Do you want I... to just, just read, because uh, Seth put it incredibly well, you want to just read the message? Sure. So, <clears throat> Seth writes, 
Hey, so what's y'all's take on the theory that in the original plan, the plot, the paper, and the place we all end up was a backdoor pilot for a second set of films that were going to serve as a remix or reverse sides of the original seven to make a total of 14 films that make a closed thematic loop. I always thought it was a little out there, but talking about the context of the final fight really made me wonder if the change Georgie ultimately represented was Laz deciding to end at eight instead. That is the bananas theory, which, yes, and part of me, there's a part of me that desperately wants it to be true. Sure. Because it's so bananas. Well, because like, it, it does apply to the theory that, you know, that the way movie eight ends is a statement about getting to an ending. Like, that still applies there, yeah. if that's true. Which is like, I, I'm cool with it. I, boy, like, I can maybe see the thought that at some point that was an idea that Laz had. Like, I can see Laz creating the sort of concept of what Movie 7 unfolds, of what the Purgatory Bureaucrat unfolds, mm -hmm. and thinking about what if we did an extra loop of this. Yeah. Um, how, how do you feel? I, I don't know if you've interfaced with media that does this that much. How do you feel about media that kind of does some version of this, where, like, whether it's a reboot or something within the same text, uh, kind of, like gets recursive upon itself and sort of takes, like, another shot at its own narrative in order to build upon that same narrative. Could you give me some examples of things that do this? Because I, I know what you're talking about, but I'm having okay. a hard time wrapping my head around it right now. One's gonna make... Actually, both of these are gonna make your eyes roll. Okay. Uh, for different reasons. Uh, one is Homestuck. Okay, like, with... Like, with, you know, Hussey going back and doing Homestuck 2 years later after everyone stopped caring? Two things. One, that. But two, also the Alpha Kids in Homestuck. I'll, oh. I'll do this the easiest way possible. So, Homestuck. Giant story. If you, if you have not read it, this is your primer on Homestuck. No, it's not. Um, starts out following these four kids. They go on a big whole thing. There's some other characters that get introduced. There are two points in Homestuck where you learn about a whole different group of characters' journey to a thing. The first is not the important one. The second one is... Essentially when, where the plot uh, happens. Yeah, basically. Um, Act 5 of Homestuck concludes with this big event that uh, sort of not resets the universe, but wipes out the universe the story's taken place in, or most of the story's taken place in, and opens up a new one that all the characters then sort of shuffle into. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that time up to a certain point has happened in that new one. So then in that new one, you see not alternate versions of the first four characters, but four sort of parallel characters take the slot of those four characters. And you kind of see a lot, like, Act 6 of Homestuck is a very long period of them going through a similar entry into the bigger story to what you originally saw those first four characters go into. So the other example that will make you roll your eyes well, hold on. is... Is it Evangelion? It is Evangelion. Have, Evangelion. Well, no, so, so th it's an interesting thing, I think. H have you and I ever talked in any context about the Rebuild movies? We have not talked about them. I am aware they exist, and I have not seen them. Okay, so... But uh, I'm aware of them, and I kind of get, get the premise. So there's three of them, and there's going to be a fourth that's going to wrap it up. What they are 
it starts out as the plot of the show, but, you know, there's some things that just start to veer off the path more and more exponentially. Then the end of it, things go way off the path. <laughs> what, what happens in that case um, is that Hideki Anno, the, the director of Evangelion, specifically wanted to create a thing that starts off as a reset of that original plot mm -hmm. and then takes a very hard left turn to sort of manipulate the audience's expectations. Okay. Um, personally, I don't think it works in the end. But that, that's another example of that, where it's like, here's here's a second recursion upon an initial idea. Okay, so here's... I'm sorry that took ten fucking minutes to get to. But I, I do have an answer for you. I don't dislike it on principle. I think it is very hard to do well, and very hard to do in such a way that it isn't just like the artist beating their head against the wall about an idea. I think the way you do it very poorly i think if you do it poorly you end up with jk rowling constantly like editorializing the harry potter canon boy yeah um which uh i, I i'm certainly not as like i i just don't feel as strongly about harry potter as a lot of people do um mm -hmm. so i don't have as many uh, so i i know people like have a lot, a lot of very strong opinions about that for various reasons but obviously she should have left it alone yes um, so I think I think the way you do that very very badly is that is you do, you you pull a J.K. Rowling essentially. I think that the the, the way the way you do this well is like to, uh, like to kind of pull from your wheelhouse is Studio Ghibli movies, and a lot of them have very similar themes and similar visuals. But it, it feels like you know the artist going in and saying, "Oh, I liked that from this story. What if I took that and put it someplace new and expanded on it?" Is that fair? I haven't seen a whole lot of Studio Ghibli movies, but that's the, the sense I get. I I don't think that's quite the same, but I like the idea there. I, I'm trying to think... My, my, my honest answer is no, I don't think that's quite the same, okay. but I'm trying... Well, I'm trying to think, like... Well, the, the way... From what I've seen, a lot of stu Studio Ghibli movies share similar, similar through lines, like similar themes and ideas and they do different things with them and they yeah, share yeah, yeah, yeah. and they share a lot of visuals and aesthetics they're the, yeah they're thematic and aesthetic recursions on the same ideas yes rather and, than here's the plot but different things happen i'm following yes. you okay so i think that's that's the best way to do it the best way to do it is to take the things you like and make something completely new that's um interesting yeah okay. i don't so I don't think it's... I don't hate it on principle, but I do think it's really difficult to do well, and I don't think Laz would have done it well at that point. If Laz yeah. wants to come back now and do it, maybe. You know what's a wild example of this, actually, that I can't believe I didn't think of until right now? Yes, tell me. Y you ever watch... This isn't actually quite the same, but it achieves the same purpose, ultimately. You ever watch a little documentary called X-Men Days of Future Past? Yeah. <laughs> that That's... It's... I Wolverine's like journey in that movie is the journey of an author making a recursive <laughs> story on their story. You're Wolverine is Hideki Anno making the Evangelion you're, rebuild. You're, in this essay, I will. You're totally right. I, I also should have thought about that because I, uh, I like that movie. Uh, I, I, I like a lot about that movie. I, I like I like Days of Future's pa Past, and my favorite superhero movie is. Um, uh, first class. X Men First Class. First is my Class rules. X Men First Class is my favorite superhero movie. First Class but, is great, uh, and I think it's very telling here at the forty-something uh, minute mark of this that we spent a lot of time talking about other pieces of media. <laughs> yeah, we really have because we? 
Well, because like I said, I said this at the, in the first episode, pop culture does not make sense without the Marmoset Chronicles. Yeah. You know how many weird fucking things you can be watching and you're like, hold on, did they just reference the Marmoset Chronicles? Mm. There's a, um, found this out when I was uh, doing some research for one of our earlier episodes and just kind of uh, reading the entirety of the Marmoset Chronicles Wikipedia entries. <laughs> As um, you do. There's uh, at least two European bands, I think one is German and the other is Swedish, that have uh, Marmoset Chronicles references as their names. Yeah, okay, yes. Um, are you aware, uh, one of them, I, I don't know if you read this deeply, one of them has more than that, Kirsten. One of them tried to pull a Coheed and Cambria and, like, write music that was about concepts and plot lines from the Marmoset Chronicles movies. That's sort of incredible, I'll be honest. I think they only did it for a little bit. It wasn't even, like, a copyright infringement thing. They just stopped eventually. But, like, they have an album that's, like, them trying to do that. That's awesome. I'll be completely yeah. honest with you. I sort of love that. Well, yeah. and there's, like... It pops up all over media because that's how important these movies are, which is why it's so incredible that Laz Patillo just flounced. Laz Patillo yeah. just up and left. Yep. And he didn't even like, he didn't even give us the courtesy. I'm being sarcastic here. He didn't even give us the courtesy of like having some last final blowout and like screaming fuck you at someone and vanishing into the sunset. He just kind of stopped showing up to things. Pretty much. And th there's just no other creator alive who did that. Like, think of yeah. think of all, like, the really, like, influential movie directors of the past hundred years. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anyone who just, like, said their piece and then just fucking vanished? Not like, you know, God. only made three good movies and then proceeded to make a bunch of crap, because there's plenty of people like that. Right. But no, like, he appeared, he changed the face of pop culture, and then he just left. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely think of directors who, like, are, you know, more discerning with what projects they, they hop on. You know, mm -hmm. there's directors who only do a movie every few years or whatever. Like, um, I, I've, I've, I know I've referenced uh, Blank Check, the podcast, a few times on here. I just listened to their series on Brad Bird, who did, like, The Incredibles and Ratatouille and The Iron Giant. Like, he... He has been around for a long time, and it's only done, like, six movies. Like, you definitely do have directors who hone in on the ideas they want to oh. work on. But you don't get someone who hones in on the ideas they want to work on and then just declares that there will be no more ideas well, in the same yes. way that Laz seemed to have done. Well, see, my, like, like my go-to for the kind of thing that you're talking about is uh, Terrence Malick. Are you familiar with the work of Terrence Malick? Not in the fucking slightest. Uh, he did, like, The Tree of Life. Oh, sure, okay. Uh, yep, never mind, I know so who that is. So, <laughs> in his... Hold on, I need to do some counting really fast. This guy started making movies in 1973. That was when his first movie came out. He has made, mm -hmm. to date, he has made ten movies. Yeah. And, uh, I haven't watched even a large chunk of them. But I know people really, really like them. I know they're kind of, like, high-concept and arthousey and very, like, you know, kind of cinematographers lose their mind over them. Um, but they're... But he's just... He just only makes a movie at once every, like, decade. 
Right. But no, Laz Patillo made eight movies in 16 years, about, right? About 16? Yeah. Yeah. And then was just like, I'm fucking done. And then fled to Latvia. Or Sweden. Or Ukraine. Or Sri Lanka. Or... The, or the, the moon. Or the Caribbean. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Because we, cause we don't know, and that's I think that's why that's what's so frustrating is that we just don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We don't really even know why he decided to give up this bad. Yeah. Well, it, or if it was giving up, right? Like yeah. that. That is the question that has haunted haunted me, and I'm sure probably you, and will haunt us all. Uh, fans of Las Patillo's work until the day we die is did he have like more manuscripts and more ideas for movies that he just never did anything with? What 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 does this man's cutting room floor look like? Uh, just it has my hopes and dreams in it is what it does. I I, I want to know. I don't care if it's bad. I, I I would be fascinated if it was bad. I would love if it was bad or if it was good. I just I want to see what because. You know, like, he can't have just not ever had another idea before or after. I really want to know, one, what ideas he had during this that he didn't work with, and two, what ideas he's had since that he probably hasn't done anything with. It's like, in Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, in Morpheus's castle, he has a library filled with all of the books that were never written. That's cool. And it's like all of it. So it's like every book that X famous author never got a chance to write or was never able to get it out of their head. And the first time I read that, I almost cried because it isn't real. Um, And I I desperately want it to be real. Uh, And I think I would absolutely look for Laz Patillo scripts if I got to be in that library. And I really do wish that Laz was just more active in the community more active uh, he doesn't have any social media unless he has some burner accounts um it, which would be fucking funny it would be so funny it if really he had burner would. accounts but yeah. i wish that there was just some way to communicate with him or like how special a product he made yeah absolutely because um you know I, I i'm sure he knows that his shit is valued like it's it's the fucking marmoset chronicles but i i hope he knows that you know Shit like this dumb podcast we're doing are still being done today. You know, I, I yeah. hope he understands that people are still celebrating his work. And that, like, people are celebrating his work because it's great, not because... Because I do think he became worried that he was turning into one of those, like, Milk the Franchise movies. M- sure. Milk the Franchise people. I don't think he ever really wanted to be that. I think that there was uh, a burning little piece of anti-establishment in Laz that just probably fueled his burnout more than anything, but... Yeah, definitely. I think also he would, and maybe he does if he's aware of it, he would have hated the rise in the last decade of loving absolutely bad movies and, like, like you know, the, the, the post-The Room era that we're living in now where there's so much, like... Uh, you know, where people have, like, parties to laugh at the Star Wars prequels and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think... I, I think he would have lived in fear of his movies being that be, being the subject of one of those parties one day or any of them even if it was just the shadow kit which dessert no I'm not gonna say it deserves <laughs> to be there I don't think that um, but you know even if it was just the ones that are lesser liked he would fucking hate that yeah and so people talk about ego a lot when they talk about Laz Patillo and mm-hmm. 
for some reason that that word never really sat right with me when talking about him and I thought about it and I think I kind of figured out why because I don't think it's ego I think it's anxiety that tracks yeah um because there are definitely directors with egos and then there are directors where I'm like are you are you good do you need like do you need a second and I think Laz Patillo thought he needed a second and then it turned out he needed the rest of his lifetime fuck dude that's oof yep there it is there it is, folks. <laughs> Which is sad. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. But you know, who knows? Like, I, I always still hold out hope. Like, what if he does come back one day? Would you, if he came back, would you want him to make more TMC? I was about to ask you that same question. Yeah, like, or, or do you want him to do something else? I want him to write a book. I want to see that man. Mm write a book because we, we, we talked about this last time right how like a lot of a lot of the scripts of his movies read like novels a little bit like yeah the way he thinks about what does and doesn't count as action mm-hmm. you know like he when we think about cinematic action we tend to think about fights or explosions or mm-hmm. you know something with a lot of physical movement yeah he sometimes does but often doesn't mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the things i love about his series of movies um you know i i that, that's going back to our ranking earlier i like a lot of quiet or slow burnier movies a lot of the mm-hmm. time i i love cool action too but like i i i really like those slow burns and i think he works really well with those i would love to see him do that in prose i would love to see him try his hand at doing that in a novel all right um what would you want him to do i would want him to do a prestige tv show <sighs> Okay, yeah. Like, you know, give him, like, like a 15-episode, like, high-budget HBO show. Give him a season of, uh... True Detective? Yeah. Yeah. No, that Yeah, kind give him of, a season of True Detective, yeah. That kind of thing. Like, yeah. that sort of... So that way he, he has a chance to sit down and make something kind of high-concept and literary and talky that... And he wouldn't be as, like change to all the things he hated he seemed to hate about making movies Hmm. i would also love to see him write a book but also i can't i can't like be like yes go write a book man who composed some of the most iconic shots in the western film canon (laughs) that's fair Uh, so yeah i would love to see him do a prestige tv show where he's given space and budget and supports Mm-hmm. And just, I would love to see what I would love. I, I, cause I think he, this guy's got to have at least one more story in him, right? It, well, yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, pro- let's assume that wherever he is, he hasn't been making more. Like, there's two realities either he's been making movies and just like shelving them and never showing them to anyone, mm-hmm. or he's not been making more movies. He's got to have some ideas by now, you know, whether he mm-hmm. does anything with them or not. They yeah. Be in there. You know, I, I would actually... So I don't want him to write a memoir. I don't want him to write an autobiography. I, I think he never fucking would. No. Those movies are his autobiography as far as he's concerned, I think. Yes, and he um, didn't even really like putting that out there in the end. Exactly. But I would love to see from him a, like, Stephen King's on writing kind of thing. That's just about mm-hmm. his writing process. Mm-hmm. Or like I an would, on-film-making type 
deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What What is it like, what, you know, whatever degree he wants to talk about his personal life that bled into these movies. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about his creative process in terms of how he went about adapting those, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that, that's something I think about a ton, you know, now that I'm older and more experienced in understanding of what makes good writing good and carry a message than I was when I was like 16. Something I do sometimes is I look at older stories I had, and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of doing this with one right now uh, in my own time, is like taking a concept I had when I was 16 and kind of just want to have fun with a cool world and do some cool shit Mm -hmm. and go, all right, how do I inject a deeper idea that makes this what 25-year-old Jay would deem actually worth telling. Yeah. You know? How does how does he do that? How does that look for him when so much of what he's doing is so personal and painful? You look at Diagnosis Aquamarine mm-hmm. and you read everything about his parents and his own abusive childhood mm-hmm. and all this stuff about how he was brought up. Um, and you, you, you know... If you want to be a voyeur about it, you look at the photos that have circulated of of his childhood home Mm -hmm. and reflect on how those contrast to the house he built in that movie. I want to know exactly what his mental process is in building I would love to know how much of that was was subconscious and how much of that was on purpose. Exactly. Speaking of, like, going back and looking at old work, um... You know, sometimes, like, you're writing something, and then, you know, you take a break from it, you go back, and you're like, wow, uh, uh, holy projection, Batman. I didn't realize I was doing it that badly. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, all right, well, this is kind of crap, but it's not kind of of crap, like, in in concept. It's kind of crap, because I wrote this, and I, uh, there's just too much of me in it. Sometimes, they, they say write what you know, sometimes you have to write away from what you know. Because mm-hmm. the fact that, like, you're so close to it is what is stopping you from having the, um, the gap in, the, the, it's stopping you from having the space for reflection and more complicated discourse. You could arg- argue Logica has a little bit of that problem. Yes. And, um, I, as someone who has consumed a lot of, like, postmodern literary criticism and... So, so the whole idea of, like, death of the author and mm-hmm. what do you do with authorial intent and right. this, this, that, and the other thing. Right. And I do, I do think it's a little bit weird and very a very flawed way of analysis to kind of really consider the author when looking at a text. But I there agree. are some yeah. people who make it near impossible to do that. Yeah. They, they, uh, to go way back, you want to talk, uh, like, Lord Byron, if you want to talk about British romantic (laughs) poets. Sure, Uh, I was going to say, like, H.P. Lovecraft is another good one. Yes. Yeah, for better and for worse with him. Mostly for worse. Uh, Well, yeah, mostly for look up what he named his cat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Don't actually look that up unless you want to just get sad and angry. But, so... To kind of like to to, so I I've I've read a good amount of H. P. Lovecraft works, and honestly, I think those stories are best enjoyed if you read them as stories of crippling depression. Hmm. Where yeah, I can, oh I can I can totally see that. Well, when you just think about what 
a cosmic horror is well, by definition. Yeah. Well, it, that and if you want to sort of do a, you know, projection of what you know about the author into the into the book, I think you can read those as someone who is very, very aware that his own anxieties and prejudices are absolutely destroying his life and his ability to be happy, uh, yeah. and he absolutely cannot stop. Yeah. Um, which doesn't, you know, excuse any of H.P. Lovecraft's H.P. Lovecraftness. I, I, I'm not going to go to bat for this guy. He was a xenophobic white supremacist. Uh, yeah. But I do think that is an interesting way to read those stories. I was going to say, do, do you feel like that counts as death of the author, or is that still taking the author? Because you, you're not taking a, authorial intent in there. You're just kind of taking who the author was yeah. into account. There. Um. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that too. Yeah, because like personally to me, I think I think I do more of that latter thing. I think taking into account just who the author is is a mm-hmm. lot of how I think about these things. Yeah, and I think that there are times when that works and times when that can be very uh, redactive and very reductionary. Uh, I don't think it's that with these movies. And um, God, I wish the world had more Las Patillo, I guess. Uh, I-, I remember... Watch. I wish I remember the source for this, and I don't. But someone, it was some sort of. I think it was a video essay that mentioned Rage Against the Machine in passing, <sighs> and it said, "Well, maybe if Rage Against the Machine had raged a little bit less when they did, they wouldn't have ended up sitting out the entire Bush administration." <laughs> when you know, maybe we could have. We needed some violent punk music, that wasn't Green Day. <laughs> Listen, I love Green Day. The, the political stuff on that album is not the good stuff. Anyway. No, we, we, we agree. We, we, we have the same opinion on Green Day. I think. Uh, but I... And I, I kind of feel the same way about Las Patillo. Like, maybe if you had paced yourself a little bit, you wouldn't have sat out some... Essentially two generations who I think would have had even better reactions to his movies than the people and his audience back then did. Right. And, you know, like, there's the other side of that where those people can still do what we're doing now 50 years later and Mm -hmm. see the movies he made in that era. But I I do think you're right, though, because you do do occasionally see, you know, I'm using authors in the whatever medium sense, but authors, so to speak, who do come back and, you know, get defined originally for one thing they do and then way later have other stuff they do that reaches a whole new group of people. Like, you do see that sometimes. It's hard. You yes. don't see it a lot. It's a very lot of hard. people capture one audience once, or one mm-hmm. audience, you know, within a few years, mm-hmm. and that's kind of it. Which is scary to think about as a writer and someone who wants to write more. Yeah. Like, that that's a scary thing to think about. But, like, y- you gotta wonder if that was something Laz thought about. Was, like, did he just decide that he would rather have his things he made continue to be enjoyed uh-huh. and just leave it at that versus continue to try and make new new things, I think he probably knew that he would be held to some really high expectations. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if he was afraid of failure, maybe he was, but he probably knew there was a chance of failure with his next thing. Like, yeah. that that's what happened, you know, like, <laughs> fucking any, any director who has a giant thing they make and then they go off and make some other completely unrelated thing, that completely unrelated thing is probably going to get a lot of unfair comparisons to their big defining the, work, the, and then they're going to struggle against that for the rest of their fucking lives. The curse of the one-hit wonder. Yeah. Yeah. And or the one sixteen, the the one eight movie wonder. <laughs> well, yeah, and um, we are 
an hour into this debrief, and I still feel like we've barely debriefed. Yeah, but you know, I, I think that's okay, because yeah. as we've uh, said before, this was originally where we were going to end this show, we but do- it's not where we're going to end this show. Yeah, we do want to keep talking about this. Um, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I think we need, we could use just another episode to debrief, quite honestly, where we don't- Do you want to do that? Do you want to do a second debrief episode and then sort of decide things from there? Hmm, maybe. Let's see what happens. Um, you know, yeah. Uh... Please, um, let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Um, if there is a particular theory you'd like us to do a deep dive on, uh, if there's some weird, uh, side project type world connecting thing you'd like us to look at. We have, we have a couple of those lined up already. One in particular, two in particular that I am very excited to get to. I don't know, like... I, I don't know if any of you are really into, like, bootleg action f- figures and you want us to talk about that. Please excuse me, I just choked on my tongue there for a second. <laughs> or, yeah, let us let us know, basically, because we would love to keep talking about this uh, as we're winding down on um, ten episodes, Jay. We did ten, we've done ten episodes of this. We've done ten episodes of this, and by God, I'm proud of these ten episodes. Me too. And so, uh, a little bit like how we never know if we'll hear Laz Patillo's voice again, I'd voice, see him again, anything. Um, we're gonna, we're, you'll know that we'll be back, but we are gonna take a little bit of a break. Next week, we are not gonna have an episode, because we are gonna spend some time sort of planning exactly what we want to do next, what the next step in this project is. But I, I think we should not tell them what it's going to be, Kirsten. I think I think we should leave them as in, mu- in, in as much suspense as we have all been when it comes to thinking about whether Laz Patillo, well, frankly, is even still alive. Yeah. Laz Patillo, if you're alive, send us a sign. I mean, honestly, yeah. He won't. Send- He'll never listen to this. But if he were to... Send us a sign. Give, I, give us something, sugar. You you can you can do you can send me a sign on Twitter. Yeah. How, how is that? How is that segue, Jay? Do we like it? <laughs> uh yeah, so, yeah. Hey, so, Kirsten, yeah. where where can Laz Batillo send you a sign on Twitter? Well, on Twitter, I'm Kirsten M. Writes, and uh, the idea of Laz Batillo having an Instagram is too hilarious for me to not think about it. But if you want to do it on Instagram, I'm Kirsten Meehan Writes. Uh, the Twitter is much sillier, and the Instagram has a lot of poetry and books and big thoughts. Uh, Jay, if Las Patilla wants to send a message to you, where should he send it? Uh, he should rent a plane and go skywriting and write it in the sky. <laughs> no, uh, he can find me on Twitter at Extreme Salsa Hing, and he is ready to, he's welcome to at me anytime with that. <laughs> You can also find me on YouTube at Hi, I'm Jay, which, believe it or not, I'm actually working on an, a script for a video for that I might make at some point. Who knows? Yeah, no, really just those right now. Fo- follow me on those places. Twitch.tv slash Extreme Salsing. I might get back to streaming at some point in the near future. Whoms gnomes. Not I. Surely not I. Uh, and as always, we are part of the Orange Groves Podcast Network, and we are so thankful to be there. Go and check out a million other shows. Yeah, that's that's all I've got, Kirsten. Uh, that's all I've got, too. Um, except for thank you guys for sticking with us for ten episodes. I genuinely can't not, cannot believe uh, the response we've gotten to this podcast. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing to see people listening and engaging, and we hope that only continues. Yes. Maybe even grows. You, yeah, uh, you're all incredible. Um, 
and uh, you blow me away, and you make it really, really worth it to do this. And as always, don't forget a rope ladder. <laughs> no, always have a rope ladder. Bye, always guys. Always have a rope ladder. Fuck! Bye, guys. I'm Theo, and this is LGB Time Machine, an LGBTQ history podcast. In each episode, I'll research and then discuss a topic or time period or person that's relevant to LGBTQ history, and hopefully this will encourage more people to look into our history. So far, I've done a broad overview of the persecution of LGBTQ folks in the U.S., talked about the homophile movement, the Lavender Scare, LGBTQ bars, and looked at some of the riots and events leading up to and including Stonewall. Tune in to the Orange Groves Network to learn some cool facts about LGBTQ plus history that you might not have known before.